This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. I hope you're excited to study God's Word together, are you? Turn to the New Testament book of Colossians. We're going to start our spring study today, and this study in the book of Colossians is going to take us all the way to the end of April. And uh, so we hope that you will engage with us in the coming weeks as we study this great little book written by the Apostle Paul. As you turn there, you can also take out your notes. We're just going to dive right in today and start studying uh, this book. And I want to give you just a little bit of background and some foundations about the book of Colossians. And you can start filling out your notes immediately today. We're going to see that Colossians is a personal book. It's a personal book. At the very beginning of Colossians, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Verse 1 tells us that the Apostle Paul authored this letter to the Colossians, although he never visited the city of Colossae. Colossae was a real city in the Greco-Roman world, and real people lived there, and there was a real Apostle Paul, and there were real Christians in this little town called Colossae. It was Epaphras who actually started the church in Colossae. And we're going to hear about Epaphras today in the text that we're going to study. And we hear his name a couple of different times in the New Testament. Now, it's likely that Epaphras was a convert of Paul's during his three-year ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major commercial center and neighboring center to Colossae. And it's very likely that Epaphras and Paul had crossed paths there, and Epaphras was a product of Paul's ministry. Now, Paul wrote this letter during one of his stints in prison. And we know from Philemon 23, in the book of Philemon, that Epaphras himself had joined Paul in prison, at least at one point, because he was called a fellow prisoner in Philemon 23. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the saints and faithful brothers In Christ at Colossae. Now that that word brothers in in verse 2 to the saints and faithful brothers. Ladies, I want you to make make sure that you are included this morning. Anytime you see that term brothers in the New Testament, most of the time translated from the original language, it means brothers and sisters. But because the Bible is a patriarchal book and is written in more masculine language, oftentimes it's going to be translated as simply brothers. But we want to make sure that you're included in the discussion today because it was written to all of the brothers and sisters who were there at Colossae. And that term Adelphos in the Greek indicates that their association was, and I love this phrase, like a second home. And it reminded them, and by proxy us, that we are members of an eternal spiritual family and should look out for the care and betterment of one another. So I want you to first see that the book of Colossians, just like so many of the letters in the New Testament, these are not simply theological treatises. They're not simply books written about God or about Christian practice. They are first and foremost primarily personal letters 
from the apostles written to real-life Christians in real-life circumstances. And so we first of all learn that Colossians is a personal book. Secondly, it's a purposeful book. It's a purposeful book. In other words, there is a reason why Paul writes this letter to the Christians who were at Colossae. Paul was not sitting under a juniper tree, pensively postulating about matters of theology and practice, and decided, hey, I think I'm going to write a book. Let's see if I can get published today. No, instead, there were real Christians in a real city needing real guidance and reassurance in their very real faith. And so Paul writes to them and gives it. Now, he is primarily writing. Here's the primary purpose for which Paul writes this letter, just like many other letters in the New Testament are written. He is primarily writing to them in the face of false teaching. Now, scholars differ on the exact nature of the false teaching, and we're going to study that false teaching a little more in detail in the future weeks. But in short, there were those in Colossae who were teaching that Christians needed to go beyond the gospel in order to really experience spiritual fullness. And this is not simply a Colossian issue. Numerous letters in the New Testament were written to address false teaching. Moreover, if you even look at subsequent generations of Christians after the New Testament Christians, all the way up to today, every generation of Christians have faced false teaching in some shape, form, or fashion. And just as the New Testament believers were commanded and exhorted to hold fast to the original, unadulterated gospel of Christ that had been given to them, so you and I today, in the face of many different ideologies and many different philosophies that we experience today, we are also to hold on to that same faith. That same faith, that same gospel, by faith alone in Jesus alone for the glory of God alone. So, not only was it a personal book, it was also a, personal, a purposeful book. And thirdly, I want you to see this. It's a practical book. It's a very practical book. What Paul is going to do throughout this letter, and we're going to begin seeing it even today, is he is going to remind the Colossians not only of the saving power of the gospel of Jesus, but also the life-giving fruit of the gospel. In other words, that when we become a Christian, believing the gospel is not simply about having a moral improvement. It's not about simply choosing a faith or choosing a belief system. But the gospel that saves us is also going to transform our life. And therefore, it's going to permeate every aspect of existence on planet earth. And he's going to show us many of the different ways in which the gospel permeates the Christian's life. So the gospel not only makes us right with God, but also makes us look more like Jesus in the world. And it's a practical book for you and for me today. Even though we are divorced from 2,000 years of, of Christian history since the time of the Christians at Colossae, the truths written here written originally to them, are still very relevant and are very applicable, and they're commanded to you and me today as we follow Jesus. And so let's pick up in verse 3, and I want to read verses 3 through 14 today, as today 
we begin this study in Colossians. Paul writes this, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> As you see in your notes, I have entitled this study of Colossians, Rooted. Rooted. Because as you make your way through this book, you're going to see that Paul's heart, his passion, is that the Colossians would root all of their lives in this gospel. And then once the, their life is rooted in the gospel, that the gospel is going to have such effect in their life that we're not going to just see gospel roots, but we're also going to see gospel fruits bearing forth in their life as they live on planet Earth. And it's the same thing that I want you to see and for me to see as we study it today. Here is the foundation. The foundation of this study as well as the foundation of the message that we're going <coughs> to study today. When you receive the gospel, it changes your life. When you receive the gospel, it changes your life. When you look at verse 5, I really believe that verses 5 and 6 would serve as the theme of this section of Scripture. Picking up in the second part of verse 5, Paul writes this, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that faith and repentance makes you right with God. The word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Now I understand as 21st century followers of Jesus, we read that, and if you're, and if you're not familiar with the scriptures, there's a lot of flowery language in there, right? There, there, there's a lot of verbiage. Um, Paul does not know a simple sentence. He would drive a grammar teacher absolutely mad today. He writes in a lot of run-on sentences because he just cannot restrain himself to talk about all the greatness of God and what the gospel of Jesus Christ has done in his life and those whom, who followed him. But what I want you to see there very simply is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is active. He talks about how the gospel of Jesus Christ had, was bearing fruit it was alive. It's active in their lives. 
just as it is active in your life and in my life today. Now, this is huge for us to understand. Becoming a Christian is not about choosing a faith. Becoming a Christian is not about moral improvement. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about cleaning yourself up and then coming to be baptized. No, instead what happens is when you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you turn to Jesus and you say, I'm looking to you, Jesus, to be the author and the finisher of my faith. I know that I can never make it to God on my own. I am surrendering my life to you. What the Bible would teach us is that the gospel comes in and takes root. It takes root and starts transforming, changing every aspect of your life. I want you to hear this truth this morning. Jesus did not save you to just tinker with your life a little bit. Jesus did not save you in order to make you a better person. Jesus saves you so that the old sinful man, the old sinful woman would die to your sin. And then he will raise you in resurrection power in order to make you a new creation. When you receive the gospel, Paul tells us, it changes your life. This morning, I want to show you at least four areas here because it's laid out here. And we're going to go through some of this fairly quickly. But we're going to show you three ways in which the gospel changes you. Number one, the gospel changes the way you think. The gospel changes the way you think. Verse three says, we always thank God. Just stop right there. We always thank. Thank God. What a statement. What a statement. And it's even more remarkable when you think about the apostle who is writing this. Think about Paul's circumstances. He was beaten multiple times in multiple cities for preaching the gospel. He was arrested several times for preaching the gospel. He was what we might call a repeat offender. At the writing of this letter, Paul is in prison. Some of the churches he has planted, some of the people whom he had invested his life into are facing persecution themselves. And multiple churches whom he had planted or had a part in starting are facing false teaching. Now, if you're Paul and you're in those circumstances, why in the world would you write, we always thank God? Because this is not abnormal for him. As a matter of fact, of the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, in the beginning of the letter, 11 of 13 times, you will read something very similar to that. He starts almost all of his letters with we always or we constantly thank God. Even in the midst of all those circumstances. Why? Why? Because the gospel changes the way you think. The gospel changes your perception. The gospel changes your perspective. 
I want to show you something, and for those of you who have been a part of Mill City for a while, you've probably seen me do this before, but some of you haven't. I want to point your attention to Romans chapter 1. Here's what I think is so significant. Here's what the Bible tells us about us in our lost state. That we're not just lost, we're not just sinful. It goes deeper than that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes a a long indictment about sinful humanity. And you can read that in its context in the entire chapter of Romans chapter 1. But in verse 21, a part of that indictment against sinful humanity, Paul writes this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's what the apostle would teach us. That in our lost natural state, ungratefulness characterizes our lives. He teaches us that our natural bent is not to thank God. But look what he does. In 11 of his 13 letters, Paul begins with, we always thank God. What happened? Why? The gospel changes the way you think. The gospel changes your perspective, not only towards God, but also towards others. He says, we thank God what? We thank God when we pray for you. And then if you look down at verses 7 and 8, he talks about Epaphras. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Do you see what the gospel does? The gospel changes the way you think. Not only does it change the way you think towards God, it also changes the way you think towards others. Epaphras is called a fellow servant on your behalf. Epaphras was now consumed with others. And then he says, he tells me, about your love in the Spirit. The Colossians started looking out for others' interests. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel moves us from a general attitude of ungratefulness to one of gratitude. And it transforms us as people who once were selfishly consumed with ourselves to people who are now selflessly concerned about others. I wonder if I could ask you that question about yourself today. If you were to examine your life today, would you be able to say, by and large, my life is characterized by gratitude. My life is characterized by thanksgiving towards God. Or if people looked at you, would they say that you're the person who is constantly bitter and is complaining and grumbling and murmuring about all of your circumstances or what you do or don't have. Do you have a general attitude of ungratefulness? Or do you have a general attitude of gratitude? The gospel changes the way you think. And then think about other people. Are you someone who is very much concerned, I mean consumed with yourself? Are you consumed with selfishness? Or are you deeply concerned about how to selflessly serve other people? 
It's a gospel test for us this morning because the gospel changes the way you think. But the gospel also changes the way you act. The gospel changes the way you act. When Christ comes into your life and you receive the gospel, it doesn't just stay inside. Now, we've already seen in verse 5 and 6 of how the gospel bears fruit. The gospel is active. The gospel transforms your life. But as we look at verses 4 and 5, he's going to say some very specific ways in which this has happened in the Colossians' life. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in these two verses, the apostle spells out just what he's thankful for. And he lists the spiritual transformation of the Colossians' lives. And he sums it up by affirming the three cardinal virtues of the Christian's life. Faith, love, and hope. Faith. Faith in the gospel for our salvation. Love. Love for God, yes, but also the familial love we are to have for fellow Christians. He mentions this multiple times in this paragraph. And hope, the reality that we are to live in this world with our eyes on the next. And all of this, is again, all of this again is because of the transforming work of the gospel taking root in your life. <clears throat> Many of you know that uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mourned the loss of my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother who raised me and uh, whom I loved very dearly. And I uh, had a great time celebrating her life in uh, Mississippi last week. And one of my fond memories of my grandmother was being in the garden with her. She loved raising flowers. She loved raising vegetables and things to eat, and all of that sort of things. Now, I did not inherit her love for that, and I also did not love uh, inherit her gift of doing it. But I, I learned a few things along the way. And, and one of the simple things I remember about basic gardening and horticulture is in order for a plant to thrive, it has to be in good soil, and it needs good roots. I know that much. I learned that in biology, but I also learned it anecdotally with my grandmother. One of my favorite things when I was a little kid, maybe some of you did this, one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid is she would teach me how to do this. She would get a little plastic cup and she would put water in it and then we would get food coloring. And we put in blue or we put in red or green and then we would get a, a white clover or a white flower of some sort and we would pick it and we would put them in the, in the uh, cup and we would watch as the white flower over the next day or two, would turn blue or would turn red. And it's because the, the, the plant would reflect what it was grounded in, what it was put in. I remember that. When it comes to spiritual horticulture, the gospel takes root in your life and then produces fruit through your life. And your fruit starts reflecting what your root is grounded in. This principle is all over the scriptures. I've just picked a few out here just to point our attention so that we can see the pattern. In Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist 
preaches this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, after we become a Christian, our lives should continually prove that we've truly come to God in real repentance. Jesus, in Matthew 13, 23, in the parable of the sower, he talks about uh, the good soil of the heart. And he says, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. In John 15, 5, which is one of Jesus' most famous exchanges, talking about uh, fruit bearing and him being the vine and we being the branches, he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me. Because in Galatians chapter 5, this same Apostle Paul is going to take on this same idea of bearing fruit, and he's going to show us the contrast between the old life and the new life. In Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's the the non-Christian life. Here's the works of the flesh. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the contrast. But the fruit. Do you see the difference already? The works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Here's the point this morning, brothers and sisters. When you receive the gospel, it changes your life. When you receive the gospel, it changes your life. We heard it in the testimonies of these two young ladies this morning. The gospel changes you. A fruitless Christian is as much an oxymoron as an appleless apple tree or a snowless New England winter or a Patriots-less Super Bowl. Christians bear fruit. Christians look like Jesus. The gospel changes the way we act. So I wonder, when your friends and family walk through the forest that is this world and encounter your life among all the dead trees and twigs, do people see a tree, a life 
that is blossoming and producing fruit in the midst of barrenness in your community, in your school, on your team, wherever you may be. The gospel changes the way you act. Thirdly, the gospel changes the way you pray. The gospel changes the way you pray. In verse 9, he shifts gears a little bit and says, and so, so based on, so here's what we're thankful for. We are thankful for the gospel change in your life. And then he talks about that. We just unpacked that some. And so, because of that gospel change in your life, he says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And this, again, is a very common introductory statement by the Apostle Paul in writing his New Testament letters. And what he's going to do here is he's going to give us a really good example in how to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But let me stop for just a moment and ask you a question. This is rhetorical. We don't want everyone uh, giving answers out loud here. But what types of prayers do we normally pray? I mean, think about it. It's, it's community group time, and I mean, we're starting those back this week. And so at community group, we're circling up and we're praying for one another. What types of prayers do we normally pray? Well, they're usually very much physical prayers. Somebody is sick. Someone has a financial need. Someone's not getting along well. Someone doesn't like their jobs. So it's very much hands-on, practical everyday things. Now, I want you to hear my heart. I don't think for a moment that we should not pray about those things. But when Paul says that we have not ceased to pray for you, he doesn't talk about any of those things. He's going to give us two or three verses here that are filled with very deep spiritual prayers that he's concerned about the Colossians' life. And he's going to show us how the gospel changes The way we pray, the way we pray for our brothers and sisters. And he does this by praying deep spiritual prayers for the Colossian church, not just physical felt needs. Now, I I want to walk a balance with you this morning, okay? Are you with me? Here's the balance I want to walk. I don't want to make you paranoid to pray. I, I don't want to make you paranoid to even utter a prayer request this week at community group. But I also want to challenge you in the way you pray. And I want to challenge you to be more mature and more spiritual and more deep and, and deeper in the way you pray. And so can I walk that balance with you today in knowing my heart and where I'm coming from here? What, what does Paul pray? If you just go down asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they would know God. He goes on, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He repeats this in both 1 Thessalonians as well as Ephesians. This is, uh, and Philippians. He is passionate about this prayer, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So he prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord. Then he prays that they would bear fruit, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He goes on, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He prays that they would be strengthened by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he prays that they would endure in their faith, 
for all endurance and patience with joy. And then lastly, he says, giving thanks to the Father. He prays that they would be grateful to God. This is a great list. Brothers and sisters, I just want to ask you a question this morning. What would happen in our faith family? What would happen in our city? What would happen around the globe if the members and attenders of Mill City Church began praying prayers like this for their brothers and sisters in Christ? It's not that we shouldn't pray for needs. Of course we should. The Bible says that God is concerned about all that concerns us. But we do a good job most of the time bringing our physical felt needs before him. But we do a pretty poor job of praying spiritual realities like this apostle prayed for these people in Colossae. And so you'll see in your focus prayer guide for this month of February that one of the things that we're encouraging you to pray this month is that we're encouraging you to pray Colossians 1, 9 through 11 for your brothers and sisters in Christ and your circle of influence. And I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to even use, start picking up and using the For Focus prayer section in your worship guides. We are very intentional here. We are trying to help train you and train our church in how to pray more comprehensively and more spiritually in our individual lives and also for the sake of our body. We can pray these things for each other too. We can do it just like Paul did for the Colossians. And we do it because the gospel changes the way we pray. Lastly, I want you to see this. The gospel changes the way you doubt. It's not a typo. The gospel changes the way you doubt. Now, I want to go back to the very beginning when I told you that the primary purpose for which Paul is writing this letter is to counter the false teaching. Now, there are those in Colossae, and we're going to look at this much more in depth in the coming weeks, but they had the secret knowledge. They had the secret spiritual resources, and they had the path, and they're looking at these new believers in Christ, and they're saying, well, sure, believe in Christ, that's fine, but you've also got to do X, Y, and Z. And they even looked with eyes of derision towards those who weren't as, quote, enlightened as they were. Now, if you're a new believer in Colossae, what do you do with this? I mean, what do you do? Okay, are these people right? Was Paul right? Was Epaphras right? Or are these people right? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, you're flipping through TV, and you turn it on TBN, twisting the Bible nightly, you know? And there are a whole different, God, a lot of people speaking for God. And they're actually twisting the Bible for their own perverted gain. There are a lot of voices out there. And you may even have friends or loved ones who have gotten mixed up with this cult group or this religious group. And, and they're starting to believe some things that you're saying, I've never heard that before. That sounds contrary to the gospel I believed in. That sounds contrary to what we teach at my church. But in a weak moment, it starts sounding very persuasive. And if you're not careful, you will be drawn away to a false teaching that could actually wreck your soul. And this was the reality at the church at Colossae. 
And what happens in that moment is you start questioning everything about your faith and you start questioning, well, who is right? Is it the faith of old or is it this new guy who has this new super interpretation? And you start even questioning your own spiritual identity. So look at the language that Paul uses in verse verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He is reminding them immediately that it is God. It is God through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has qualified you before God. It is not education. It is not philosophy. It is not some new interpretation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who has qualified you. There is no other qualification to come before God. And so in all of your doubting, Colossians, in all of your wondering about what is true, come back to the root. Come back to the root because it's only the root that will qualify you and make you right before God. This is good news for the Colossians. And brothers and sisters, it's good news for 21st century Christians in the West today. Amen? It is Jesus who qualifies you. It is Jesus who qualifies me. It's not human wisdom. It's not human understanding. It's not a new philosophy and it's not any one preacher. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Douglas Moo, who is a great New Testament scholar, says, (coughs) So it is often the case with false teachers who err not always in subtracting from the gospel, but in seeking to add to it. The gospel can be perverted through addition just as easily as through subtraction. And this is oftentimes what we see in false teaching, is it's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it sounds so good, but then we just start adding more rules, more regulations, and we start weighing people down with things in addition to Christ. Brothers and sisters, hear me loudly and clearly. You are made right with God in Christ alone, not in Christ and. That's good news for us today. You see, the gospel changes the way you doubt because the reality is each and every one of us is going to doubt. I don't know if you expected a pastor to say that this morning, but every one of us is broken. Every one of us is faulty faulty in many different ways. And in our faith, our faith is going to be shaken in different ways throughout our life. And we're going to doubt and we're going to wonder, is this thing really true? We're going to doubt and wonder, can I make it all the way to the end? So doubting is not a sin in and of itself. But what the gospel does, the gospel changes the way we doubt. Because we have a root We have an anchor of the soul in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I doubt, when I fear, when I'm scared, when I'm wavering, I don't muster up enough faith to get through. I don't go do enough works to make God happy with me. I come back to the root. I come back to the anchor. And remember, it is God who has qualified me through Jesus. And that speaks peace to the storm-ravaged heart inside. The gospel changes the way you doubt. And he goes on to say that in Jesus, we have 
redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word redeem refers to the ransom price in the, Greek, in the Greco-Roman world. It, that word redeem refers to the ransom price paid in order to free a slave from the bondage of slavery. And Jesus famously said this about himself. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning as we begin this book, this study in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul wanted to remind the Colossians of the gospel that they had rooted their lives in. And he wanted to remind them that not only had their lives been rooted in the gospel, but the gospel would also change their lives through the roots that they had. And so this morning, I want us to reflect in a couple of different ways. And the first question that I would ask you is simply this. Has the gospel taken root in you? Has the gospel taken root in you? I'm not asking you if you tried to clean up your life. I'm not asking you if you had some sort of spiritual experience when you were a kid. But for the last five years, 10 years, or 20 years, your life has looked nothing like Christ. Here's what I want you to know this morning. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ that hasn't changed your life, then you have a faith in Jesus Christ that has not saved your soul. Because the faith that saves your soul will also change your life. Because we've seen the active, permeating nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes your life. And so I'm asking you very specifically this morning, has the gospel taken root in you? Well, Chris, how does that happen? It happens through faith and repentance. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that your life has gone the way of you selfishly. And confess to God that you are a sinner in need of his saving grace and turn to him and instead of working your way to God confess that there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God and so you're looking to Jesus you want Jesus to qualify you because he lived the perfect life you were required to live and he died the cruel death that because of your sin you were required to die but then rose victoriously over the grave so that just as he now lives so shall you. That's the message of the gospel today. Believe that, receive it, and the Bible says you will be saved. Let the gospel take root inside of you. Secondly, is the gospel bearing fruit through you? Is the gospel bearing fruit through you? Now, as we grow in Christ, we're going to look like Christ in varying measure. There are some of you who have only been a Christian for just a couple of weeks. There are others of you who have been Christians for 40 years and everything in between. And so the fruit is going to look differently in different people at different times in your life. But I want to ask you, is the gospel bearing fruit through you? Are you more loving towards others today than you were a year ago? Are you more forgiving towards others than you were a year ago? Are you more patient? Are you more self-controlled? Do you find yourself continually going deeper and deeper towards sin? 
or do you find yourself fighting and run away from it? Perhaps today you would reach out to a fellow Christian and say, I really want to bear fruit for Jesus Christ. I really want to let go of this residual sin nature that continues to well up inside of me. Would you help me by praying with me each week? Would you help me by reading the word with me each week? Would you every couple of weeks or so just meet up with me and let's mutually encourage one another in the faith? Perhaps today would be a day where you just want to say, I want to serve in some way at Mill City. I want to join a ministry team so I can start working out my faith externally more. You can write that on your connection card and you can drop it in the offering basket and we'll have someone follow up with you. Perhaps seeing these young ladies be baptized today, you're sitting there saying, yes, I believe. Yes, Jesus has changed my life, but I've never gone in the baptismal waters before. I need to make my faith public. You can notate that on your connection card today too. Regardless of how Jesus is working in your life today, would you respond and let him work? And in in, in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship and sing in response to what God has spoken to us through his word today. And as we sing, my prayer is that you would respond and you would be obedient because the only worthy response after hearing God's word is to then respond and say, I'm going to obey that which I've heard today. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you saying again that we need you. And we come before you today asking for you by the power of your gospel to take root in our lives so that your gospel may produce fruit through our lives. I pray today that you would change the way we think, that you would change the way we act, that you would change the way we pray for one another, that you would change the way we even grapple with our doubt. And it would all be because of what Jesus has done in and through us through the power of the gospel. Father, work across this place today, and we pray that you would continue to cause life change. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.